possibly come into our area. It would be interesting to know how many times a week the service manager of an automobile repair shop hears the question, well, what's it going to take to get it fixed? That's what we want to know when our automobile is giving trouble. It'd be interesting to know how many times a banker would hear in the course of a week, well, what's it going to take for me to get it paid? That's what we want to know when we're facing financial problems. Several times a day, perhaps, a doctor hears it asked, well, what is it going to take to make me well? This is what we want to know when we're sick, when we have physical problems. Now, that's true. You might suppose that a preacher or anyone who is well-known as a Christian would very often hear the question asked, what must I do to be saved? After all, that's what a person would want to know if he realized he was lost. But alas, it's not the case. I suspect I could count on my hand the number of times over a period of many years that I have been asked that question, what must I do to be saved? Why don't people ask that question more often? Maybe it's because many people do not realize they're lost. Or if they realize they're lost, maybe they think they know what to do to be saved already. Or perhaps they don't realize how serious it is to be lost. But for whatever reason, we find ourselves constantly telling people what to do to be saved when they haven't even asked. I don't know whether there's anybody in this audience tonight asking that question or not. I'm sure there's some people here tonight that are not saved. I'm sure that there are some people here who certainly need to do what the Lord has said you must do in order to be saved. And I would hate to think that anyone had left this assembly unsaved without my telling them what to do to be saved. There are others out there in this community. There are people who are your friends and neighbors, people you work with, who need to know what to do to be saved. Therefore, I believe it is wise for us fairly often gospel meetings and in our local preaching to present a very simple statement of what the scriptures teach along this line. That's what I'm going to talk about tonight. What must I do to be saved? If you don't know what to do to be saved, I hope you'll listen very carefully. If you think you know what to do to be saved, I hope you'll listen carefully so that we can compare what you think with what the Bible teaches. And if you're sure you know, if you can quote the scriptures which answer the question, I hope you'll listen carefully with a view to sharing this with somebody else who may not know the things that you know, for this is our responsibility to tell them the answer to this most important question. We have this question asked, almost word for word, in three different locations in the scripture, the book of Acts particularly. I'd like for us to turn, first of all, to Acts 22. In this chapter, we have Paul's own account of his conversion. There are three accounts in the book, two of them from his own lips. And in this instance, he goes somewhat into detail about his conversion as he was on, his road to, on the road to Damascus and after he reached Damascus. You remember that he had been a persecutor of the saints. 
He had been so angry with those in Jerusalem, so determined to wipe out the church, that he had not been content to remain in Jerusalem, but had made his way some 150 miles, possibly on foot, in order to persecute disciples of Christ whom he heard were in that distant city. But he tells us in verse 6 that it came to pass as I made my journey and came near to Damascus about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? Now, that's our question, a question from a sinner to the Lord. What shall I do? Well, the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all the things which were appointed for you to do. Now, you'll observe that the Lord did not give him the answer to that question. Not once in all the New Testament do we have any angelic being, any heavenly personage, any divine one, answering this question directly to a sinner. That's not the way God intended for it to be done. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. And so Saul was told to go into the city where his answer would be found. And if we had known what one must do to be saved, we must go on with a study to see the answer that he obtained when he got to Damascus. He says in verse 11, Since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those that were with me, I came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. And he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth, for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Here the Lord had told him through Ananias what he was to do after he was saved. But the Lord still hadn't told him what to do to be saved. That answer we find in verse 16. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Be baptized and wash away thy sin. Now, that, of course, is what we want to accomplish. It is sin that causes us to be lost. And these sins must be removed if we should be, could be innocent, if we're to be righteous, if we're to be accepted by our Lord. There's the answer that Saul of Tarsus was given. Now, some have made the mistake of saying, well, there's an answer, it's a vital answer, and that's enough for me. We should not be content with just one passage of Scripture if there are other passages that teach on the same subject. We should be willing to hear all of the testimony before we draw our conclusions. If we're going to take just one passage, this one passage mentions only baptism. Are we ready to conclude that all a person must do to be saved is just to be baptized? Surely not. That's not so. Let's look to another passage before we draw our conclusion. Let's turn back to the 16th chapter of Acts. Here we have this Saul of Tarsus, though we've turned back, we've really gone forward in time from the time of his conversion, and now he is an outstanding preacher of the gospel. 
In his preaching, he has gone to the city of Philippi and there cast out a demon from a young girl. Then the object of a mob action which caused him to be beaten and put in prison with his feet fast and stock. But we're told that at midnight he was praying to God and had been heard singing hymns of praise and an earthquake came and caused the gates of the, of the prison to be opened, caused his feet to be loosed, and not only his, but those of the other prisoners in the prison. And when the jailer saw what was about to be happen, he was ready to kill himself. To him, that was the only, only honorable way out. He knew that he would be held accountable, and supposing that the prisoners had escaped, he did not want to face a trial, he did not want to face charges of having a criminal neglect, and so he thought, I'll kill myself, and that would be counted honorable. Well, Paul was not willing for that to happen. Verse 28 says that Paul cried out to him, do yourself no harm. We're all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, fell down trembling before Paul in silence. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? There's our question again, isn't it? Well, what answer will Paul give? Verse 31, he said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. What's that? He says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, I think you'll agree with me that being saved and having sin washed away is the same thing. Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, someone may say, Well, that's enough for me. Why talk anymore? Well, why should we stop with one? If we're going to take only one passage, we'd just as well take that one. Are you willing to do that? Surely not. Well, if we're not going to take that one alone, then why take this one alone? Why take Acts 16.31 alone? We should not take just one passage. We should seek out all of the answers to the question. And so we go back to the preceding instance where that question is asked in the second chapter of the book of Acts. Here we have an event which took place just a few weeks after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. In fact, only about ten days or so after the ascension of the Lord. And we have Peter preaching to a great multitude of people who had actually participated in the crucifixion of the Savior. Peter undertook to prove to them that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And in verse 36, he drew the conclusion of all that he had said by saying, Therefore... Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Verse 37 says that when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, here's our question, what shall we do? Well, what answer did Peter give? Verse 38, then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remission of sins is the same thing as being saved, the same thing as having sins washed away. But Peter told those people to repent and be baptized, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of their sins. Now, if we want to know the full truth on this matter, what we need to do is simply summarize the whole thing and learn what it was they were told to do. And we'll have the full answer to our question, what must I do to be saved? 
summarizing, it is obvious that they were told to believe in Jesus Christ, to repent of their sins, and to be baptized, and the promise was their sins would be washed away, they would be saved, they would have the remission of sins. Now, I think that there is a rather obvious question that most any person would ask, and that is, well, why did he tell each one of them something different? Why, why aren't the answers the same? Well, the point is that the circumstances were different. And if circumstances are different, then obviously answers have to be different. Suppose that Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, had been approached by Ananias, and uh, eager for the answer to the question as to what he should do to be saved, he listens closely to what Ananias says, and Ananias says, well, you believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Do you know what Saul would have said? He would have said, believe on the Lord Jesus. I do. I believed on him for three days. Don't tell me to believe on Jesus. I do already. Now what must I do? It just would not have fit the situation. Or even if he had come and said, repent. Saul of Tarsus would say, I repented. I've been praying, praying for three days. I'm waiting now to tell, for you to tell me what I must do. He had already believed. He had already repented. And so the obvious thing for him to be told was to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Well, now let's look at the jailer here. Suppose that when he was about there about to kill himself, Saul, Paul the, the apostle had said to him, Be baptized and wash away your sins. Be baptized? What is baptized? This man was a Roman, a heathen most likely. A man who knew very little or nothing about Jesus Christ. And to tell that man to be baptized would have been something that would have been totally incomprehensible to him. But when Saul said, now you believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, he recognized that from that statement that there was a Savior. And if he would put his trust in that Savior and receive the words of that Savior and obey that Savior, then he could be saved from his sins. It remained for him to be told about that Savior. It remained for him to be told what that Savior wanted him to do. But he was assured that he shouldn't kill himself. There was hope. There was one to whom he could look, who could forgive him, who could save him. And that was all that was needed. That was all that could possibly be given to him reasonably under the circumstances where he asked the question. And if you look back at the 16th chapter of the book of, of Acts, you'll find that after he had been told to believe on the Lord Jesus and he would be saved, that in verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. Isn't that repentance? Isn't that a change of attitude? I don't think he was the one that put the stripes on them, but I think he was the one that put their feet fast in stocks to make them as uncomfortable as possible. And now he's making them as comfortable as possible. Therefore, he has repented. And continuing, it is said that immediately all he and his family were baptized. This man did the same thing Saul of Tarsus did. He believed in Jesus as he was told to do, and that faith caused him to repent and to be baptized. But look at those people on Pentecost. Why were they told what they were told? Well, they obviously already believed. They never would have said, men and brethren, what shall we do? 
if they had not been convinced that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They'd had a part in his crucifixion. And instead of asking what they should do to obey Jesus, they might very well have been attacking Peter for preaching Jesus. But now they have changed their attitude. They've come to believe in Jesus, and they want to know what to do. And Peter's answer is a very obvious, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. When you put all of these together, you can see that all three of them did exactly the same things. All of them believed, all of them repented, and all of them were baptized. And if that's what they did, that's what you must do. The book of Acts is a book of conversions, models for us today, to show us how to be saved ourselves and how to teach others to be saved. And if we do not follow these examples, I know of no authoritative examples we can follow. This is what God has given us as guidelines in this matter of being saved from sin. But I want to stop just a moment to make the point that this is not intended as some kind of a formula. I think that sometime we've just gotten it down to a kind of formula. Supposing that, that the Lord has just established these things as things that you must tick off and make sure you've done in order to obtain uh, the, the forgiveness of sins. I have uh, illustrated sometime by the idea of a contest that if you want to receive a certain prize, what you're going to have to do is fill in this uh, this little coupon and maybe put a stamp on it and get it in the mail by a certain time. Now, there are places for illustrations like that. But is that this way this is? Did God just sit down and say, well, now I'm going to give them salvation and we'll have to give them something to do so everybody won't be saved and we'll say, believe, repent, and be baptized? My friends, that's missing the point altogether. If that's all we see in that, then we have failed to appreciate and understand what the Scripture is teaching here. I think that some people have thought of this as being what the Church of Christ has decided a person must do in order to get into the church, to obtain the fellowship of men and women like you and me. And I've had people actually come forward. I remember one very fine young man who later learned a whole lot more and a whole lot better but he came forward uh, over at east side and sat down when I sat to speak to him, and he said, I've come to be a member of this church. Well, I said, what, uh, what reason do you have to want to be? Well, I just like the church, and I want to be a member of this church. We spent a good little bit of time talking about it then, and uh, later he came to understand the difference in that. This is not simply something that we have decided upon to be required of anyone who wants to be a member of this church. Salvation is in Jesus Christ. And if you obtain salvation, it is going to be obtained in a relationship with Christ. He is the Savior. He is the one who is your hope, your only hope. And he is the one with whom you must establish a relationship in order to be forgiven, to be saved from your sins. And these actions are as worthless as anything could be, except for their relationship to Jesus Christ. Let's think about, let's think about these things one at a time. This, this matter of believing, what's involved in believing that has a relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that in the text that we read, the jailer was told to believe 
on the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt be saved. It's not just a matter of believing in something. Everybody believes in something. The atheist believes in something and acts on faith. But his faith is in the wrong persons or in the wrong thing. The only faith that is worth anything toward salvation is faith or belief in Jesus Christ. Belief is conviction. And the person must have some conviction regarding Jesus Christ if he is going to be saved from his sins. And that's the reason faith is so important. It is conviction that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And being the Son of God, that he has the authority to rule, to reign in your life. But what about Acts 2.38? What about repentance? Well, repentance is a change of purpose. Repentance is a change of heart. We talked the other night about the conditions of heart that produce action in our life. And repentance is a change of purpose in relation to Jesus Christ. Those people on Pentecost had already had conviction concerning Christ when they cried out, what shall we do? That conviction was based on the evidence that Peter had supplied that God had raised Jesus from the dead, thus approving him, not only by the resurrection, but by other miracles he had done. Acts 2, 22. But now Peter says you must change your purpose toward him. You put him to death when you didn't believe in him as the Son of God. Now that you believe in him as the Son of God, you must change your purpose toward him and be willing to obey him, to do what he said. And that's not all Peter said. He said, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. By the authority of Jesus Christ. And it seems to me there's particular significance in the use of the word Christ in that particular place. It must have been particularly significant to them. The word Christ is not really an English word. It's an it's a Angli anglicization of a Greek word, Christos which means, well, it means the same thing as our English word, anointed. But to the Jew, it meant the same thing as the word Messiah, which is Hebrew. You've got Messiah, Christ, anointed. And what he's saying to them is, you repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus the anointed, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And that meant, that every individual among those Jews who was baptized that day acknowledged by his very baptism that Jesus was the Messiah. It was an expression of his faith. It was an affirmation of his belief that Jesus was the one who had been sought throughout the centuries, been looked for. And it was an acknowledgment of him as his king. But you know, there's another interesting thing about baptism in relation to Christ. And that is that it changes our relationship to Christ. In the book of Romans, chapter 6 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul reminds the Romans of what took place when they were baptized. And not only of what took place when they were baptized, but what took place when he was baptized. I want you to notice the, the pronoun. Verse two, 3. Or do you not know 
that as many of us, now us would include Saul, wouldn't it? This man who'd been told to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins. He says, know you not, or do you not know, that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. This baptism was a baptism into Jesus Christ. Not only in his name, in recognition of his authority, but into that relationship that we spoke of just a moment ago. There's another passage that says the same thing. In Galatians, the third chapter, verses 26 and 27, interesting statement. Look first at verse 26. For you are all the sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now that tells you where you are the son of God in Christ Jesus. This is one place where I appreciate the reading of the Revised Standard Version. It says, in Christ Jesus, you are all the sons of God or children of God. Where in Christ Jesus? Well, the question is, if that's in Christ Jesus, how do I get into Christ Jesus? Next verse. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, the thing we have stressed, and I hope we will never forget, is that salvation is in Christ. Jesus is the Savior. And the only thing that makes baptism significant is that it brings us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the reason Saul was told to rise and be baptized and wash away his sins. When he was baptized, he was baptized into Christ. And in Christ, the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. Ephesians, the first chapter, verses 6 and 7. In the Beloved, we have our redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of our sins. That's where the blood of Christ cleanses from sin. In the Beloved, in Christ. And we're baptized into Christ. Not only that, but Saul was told when he was baptized into Christ that his sins might be washed away to do so calling on the name of the Lord. You see the connection again with Jesus Christ. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins calling on the name of the Lord. Now what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? There are a number of passages that say that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost quoted the words of Joel to that effect, that whosoever should call on the name of the Lord would be saved, verse 21 of Acts 2. And he repeated it later. Now, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Some people have supposed that it means to fall down on our knees and, and, and cry, Oh, Lord, have mercy to me, a sinner. There's a prayer that has been designated, the sinner's prayer, in which the sinner speaks to the Lord says, I'm unworthy, I'm, I'm a sinner. Now, come down and save my soul. Forgive me my sins. Is that the way we call on the name of the Lord? Jesus answered that question. He seemed to know that there would be those who would make the mistake of thinking that calling on the name of the Lord merely meant saying, Lord, Lord. And so in the seventh chapter of the book of Matthew, Jesus disillusioned anyone who might think, of that, think that. Verse 21 when he said, Not everyone who saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of the Father in heaven. 
That's the way you call on the Lord, doing the Lord's will. If we're saved by calling on the name of the Lord and saved by doing the will of the Father in the heaven, then they're the same thing. And really that's what Saul was being told to do. You rise and be baptized, that's doing the will of the Lord, and when you're doing the will of the Lord, you're calling on the name of the Lord. You're asking the Lord for what he has promised, what he's provided by his grace. If you're in some kind of trouble and you call on the Lord for help, you don't just sit back and say, law, 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 how foolish that would be. You may have to call, you may have to go down and, and sign a warrant. There may be any number of steps that you'll have to take to call on the law for the protection it provides. And there may be any number of steps that you take in calling on the Lord for the salvation he offers. But those steps will be designated by him. He's the one that will tell you what they are, and he's told you. In fact, when these men were giving these answers, they were saying just exactly what Jesus had said when he gave the Great Commission. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Or according to the account we find in Luke 22, 24, 46 and 47, thus it behooved the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead the third day to repent and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. They were just preaching the same thing Jesus had said men should do. You're going to be saved by Jesus? You won't be saved just by hearing what he says. He himself said, Whosoever heareth these things of mine doeth and not like a foolish man that built his house on the sand. You're going to be saved by the words of Jesus. You're going to be saved by obeying the words of Jesus. But when you obey Jesus, by believing, you begin the, you obtain the conviction that is necessary to salvation. When you repent, you establish the purpose that's necessary to salvation. And when you're baptized, you are baptized into the relationship where you're saved, where sins are washed away, where you have remission of sins, in the beloved, in whom are all spiritual blessings, and in whom there is salvation, all spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1, 3, in whom there is salvation, the book of 2 Timothy 2 and verse 10. Very quickly, let me just point out that the baptism that is required here is a burial. You remember the verses we read a moment ago from Romans 6, verse 3, that said, as many of us as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ? The very next verse, or were baptized into his death, the very next verse says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism. That baptism is a burial, the one that puts us into Christ. And it's a baptism for adults, because only adults can believe and repent and be baptized. Baptism is not going to change the relationship of one who has not changed his purpose and obtained conviction in Jesus Christ. Babies can't do that. They don't need to. But they can't. Baptism is for those who are sufficiently mature to be sinners first, then sufficiently mature to have conviction concerning Christ and a purpose concerning Christ in order they may establish the relationship in baptism. And the purpose is clear too, it's for remission of sins. The purpose is important. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is important. We wouldn't take it in honor of President Reagan. He may have won a, a great political victory, but if someone had come here the next Sunday and said, 
we're going to take the Lord's Supper today in honor of President Reagan, his most ardent supporter in this congregation wouldn't have taken. Not in honor of him. That's the wrong purpose. The purpose for the Lord's Supper is in memory of Jesus Christ, and the purpose of baptism is to enter into Christ for remission of sins. Acts 2 and verse 38. Let me point out to you, my friends, that many people have made the mistake not only of thinking that this is just some kind of a formula, but of thinking that once it's done, then that's the end, everything's taken care of. But the result of this experience and of, of this change must go with you through life. That conviction is absolutely necessary to salvation, and it must remain with you. You must remain convicted. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. A person may have had faith ten years ago in Jesus Christ, but if he's lost that faith, then he's no longer saved. Faith is something that must be maintained and retained. In the eighth chapter of the book of Luke, in Luke's account of the parable of the sower, Jesus explains that those who are on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, but have no root, who believe for a while, and in temptation fall away. Verse 13 of Luke 8. The person who believes for a little while is saved for a little while, but when he ceases to believe, he ceases to be saved because he doesn't have the conviction that's essential. Not only that, but a right purpose must be maintained toward Jesus Christ, a purpose of obedience. Way on down the line here, after one has obeyed Jesus Christ, his purpose toward Christ becomes slack and he ceases to desire to obey Christ. Then he's lost. And what he must do, according to Acts 8.22, is to repent, get his attitude toward Christ right again. Because if that attitude toward Christ is not right, you're lost. Well, you may have been baptized, but you're lost. But somebody says, what about baptism? Does it have to be repeated? No, it doesn't have to be repeated, but I'll tell you what must be maintained. Baptism is a death, and we've seen a burial and a resurrection to a new life. It's the beginning of something. And if you do not remain faithful in that thing begun at baptism, in that new life, then your baptism works useless. What you must do is go back to that new life which you began at baptism based upon your renewed conviction and your renewed purpose to live in harmony with the will of Jesus Christ. And my friends, whether when you come to die, the only thing that matters is whether you die with conviction for Jesus Christ in a purpose to live for Christ and in a relationship with Christ that is sustained by faithfulness to him. The only thing that matters. Thirty years ago, I was preaching in New Jersey. A very young man and a very young lady doing our first full-time work. And up there in a in an area that was already secularized, worldly, urbane. There was a young man that had come up from Lionville, Alabama, Jerry Atkinson. Jerry was a very impressive young man, still in his teens, 
he had attained remarkable knowledge of electronics. He was doing some work after high school graduation with an electronic school there. And in order to pay his way through, he was working in a, in a company there, an electronics plant, and his knowledge was such that they had put him over 20 men, all of them, of course, his seniors. He was staying with an aunt and uncle who were very worldly, if not atheistic, almost certainly agnostic. But the thing that deeply impressed me was that just as soon as Jerry arrived in New Jersey, he called up a preacher who happened to be me. And from that time on, if Jerry ever missed a service, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, gospel meetings, I don't remember it. He was an excellent Bible student, pure in his life, zealous, faithful to the Lord, as I ever saw a young man exhibit. Jerry was such an outstanding young man. He had so much intellect, so much ability, that I was a little bit fearful about him. So often, that kind of talent, that kind of mind, becomes intoxicated with self, drunk on prosperity, and busy with the affairs of, the, of this life to the point that he no longer has an interest in the Lord. But I left New Jersey, and Jerry left New Jersey, and in spite of the fact that I asked question after question after question of various people that had known him, I could never get another trace of Jerry. Just this past August, I held a meeting down in a part of Alabama where I'd never been, really, and as I was going on Sunday morning to preach, I split right through the middle of Lineville. Alabama. It didn't take long, but I, as I went through and saw that sign, the one thing that sign said to me was Jerry Atkinson. That's where Jerry was from. I went on down to the service, probably 30 miles, 35, 40 miles away, and after the service I found we had a man that had come down from up in that direction. And so I asked him, we were eating together in the afternoon, I said, do you happen to know a fellow up there by the name of Atkinson, who might have had a son. I remember Jerry talking about his father. He said, yes, I believe Otha Atkinson had a son named Jerry. And he called his wife and said, wasn't Otha Atkinson's son named Jerry? And that word wasn't struck me. She said, yes, but he died of cancer just three or four years ago. I was distressed by that. I said, do you know anything? Well, no, he lived off up north somewhere, and we don't know anything about him. But I know his dad, he said, and I'd be glad to take you over there one afternoon, and we, we, we could probably find him. I said, well, let's go. I, I'd be happy to make that trip. So I believe it was Thursday afternoon. We, we left from the place where I was holding the meeting and headed out for the little town where Otha Atkinson lived. We got there, and there was a there was a man working out there uh, in the in the drive, working on the house. And I said, "Is is there, are you old that? Oh no, no, no!" Said he left here this morning with a with some lawnmowers. I said, "Well, that must not be the man. I'm. He'd be older." Oh, said he must be seventy years old. Said he was going to the Church of Christ. That's where he hangs out over there. I said, "Well, all right." So we went rushing over there to see if he was there, and 
could see where he'd mowed the grass, high grass, but he wasn't there. We went on and did a little driving around and finally got back, and there a very tall, thin man was out working in the garden, just as high as he could be, every thread of his clothing saturated, perspiration. And I approached him and asked a question. Did you have a son named Jerry Atkinson who lived in New Jersey about 30 years ago? Yes, he said, I sure did. I was eager, of course, to know. From the moment I had learned of his death, the one question, the one question that really mattered to me was, was he faithful to the Lord? But I didn't want to ask him that. It was obvious he was a faithful Christian, and if that boy was not faithful, it would break his heart for me to ask him. And I said, tell me about Jerry. And he started in. And in the typical fashion of an old father who lost a son, he had to give me every little detail you can imagine. He started out with a lot of things I already knew. He graduated from high school here, made high grades. He said a lot of people thought he should have been valedictorian and felt that he really was maybe cheated out. But he said, that doesn't matter now, does it? I said, no, that doesn't matter now. And he said he went up to New Jersey and did real well up there. Came back, worked for someone there in the area. Said he made everybody with the knowledge he had of electronics, the televisions he could fix, nobody else could touch. And I thought to myself, and that doesn't matter either. And then he went down to Florida with an uncle, and then he got sick. And he came back, and he had to tell me about taking him to Birmingham and the doctors that he had there and how the doctors treated him and and that the rest of his life he was just a little bit, uh, a little bit weak. He didn't throw off disease. Well, I'm, I'm sorry about that. But then he went in the service, and uh, he was able to get in the service in a certain area because he passed a test. He said, "I won't go in unless you can assure me uh, assignment in a certain area." And the, and the enlister said, "Well, now if you said if you can pass this test," and he just passed the test just like that. He went in the service, overseas, got a lot of several citations from the government, got married, had, it just kept on, you know. And, and I was getting tenser all the time. Give me the answer. Was he faithful or unfaithful? More and more I was aware of the fact that that's the only thing that matters. And I think he, he was maybe intentionally holding me at bay because he knew, he knew what I wanted to know. And finally when the, the drama of the situation had come to the, to the very peak as far as I was concerned, and I was about ready to ask. He said, but I know what you want to know. He said, I'm thankful to tell you that J Jerry was active in the church, and when he died, they asked to have a special service there. Several of the brethren spoke and talked about what, what a valuable man he was as he taught classes and was active serving the Lord. That's all that mattered. It didn't make any difference whether he was a valedictorian. It didn't make any difference what he could do with a television set. It didn't make any difference how many citations he had gotten from the government. It did not make any difference who he married or how many children he had or how sick he was or how well he was or how long he suffered or what financial arrangements he had made as his father had detailed them. The only thing that made any difference was, was he in a right relationship with Jesus Christ? And let me tell you tonight that if you should die before you get home, the only thing that makes any difference is are you in a right relationship with Jesus Christ? What you are in school, what 
success you've had on a ball team of some kind, what grade you've made, what honors you've attained, what you have planned in the way of a life to live, what you have already achieved in promotions, political elections that you've won, money you've gained, property you own, fame in the community. None of that makes a bit of difference. The only thing that matters is your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what you're here for, as we tried to present Sunday morning, to be like Jesus. And you can only be like Jesus when you put to death yourself, as we've tried to stress all through the week, and put him first. This is a thing that, that grows in your life. You may begin saying, all of self and none of thee. You're going to have to come off of that. You're going to have to put to death yourself and bring yourself to say, none of self and all of thee. Jesus deserves that. And if you want to do what's best for yourself in this life and in the life to come, then the best thing for you to do for yourself 